Let us pray together. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word. Father, may we be among those who are blessed for having taken refuge in the Son, in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Last week, we looked at James chapter 4 and God's sovereignty over our lives and plans. What is man, James asks. Man is a mist, a vapor, a wisp of smoke. Of smoke. Indeed, all of life, the whole world is a vapor. It's not under our control. We make our predictions about the future. We make our plans for the future, but it's not in our hands. It's always if the Lord wills. On October 26th, 2016, so almost exactly four years ago, right before the last presidential election, Hillary Clinton put up a tweet with a picture of herself from when she was about eight years old, and she wrote, Happy birthday to this future president. Now, it's a little bit odd to wish yourself happy birthday on Twitter. I haven't seen that happen a whole lot. Uh, but the real issue here with Hillary Clinton is that she had made her plans. She said, I'm going to be president. She was sure of it, so sure of it, she would tweet it out ahead of time. And then it didn't happen. According to James, she should have said, I'm going to be president if the Lord wills. Now, before we laugh too hard at Hillary, and I suppose she is an easy target in a lot of ways, before we laugh too hard at her, how often have we done the exact same thing in our own lives? We've all had times where we were sure about our plans, sure of what we were going to do, sure how things would work out in our favor, only to find out God had planned otherwise. Hillary's not the only one guilty of counting her chicks before they hatch. There are people approaching this week's election with the same kind of bravado that Hillary had in 2016. But the reality is there's only one who knows with certainty what will happen, and that is the Lord. And he knows the future because he has planned the future. So we need to approach these things with humility. We need to plan with humility. James 4 teaches us that. Psalm 2 also teaches us humility. Psalm 2 also teaches the rulers of the earth humility. But whereas James 4 humbles us by giving us a philosophy of providence, Psalm Psalm 2 humbles us by giving us a philosophy of politics. Together, they give us all we need to grapple with what's going on in our lives and in the world. Because together they show us what history is all about. They show us how God controls history. They show us where God is taking history. While we don't know the future, while we don't know what tomorrow holds, or certainly not what Tuesday holds, while we don't know what anything holds in that sense, we certainly know that God holds the future in his hands. And we know where God is taking his people, where he is taking his creation. So let's look at Psalm 2. I think this is an incredibly instructive psalm for us uh, in this moment of history in which we find ourselves. Psalm 2 puts a lot of things in perspective for us. While we focus on electing presidents, Psalm 2 focuses on God installing his king. Psalm 2 reminds us the universe is not a democracy, it is a monarchy. God has a king. He has established his king over all. 
I don't know if it's still there, but in downtown Birmingham, if you go to Lynn Park, there is a banner with a quote from Lyndon Johnson. And uh, on that banner, the quote says, The vote is the most powerful instrument ever devised by man for breaking down injustice. That was Lyndon, Bain John, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson back in uh, the mid-60s said that. Now, certainly having the vote is a wonderful blessing. It's a great privilege. It's, it's wonderful when that privilege of voting is respected and protected and, and, and extended to wider and wider groups of people. There are many good things about that. In our representative republic, we're not just subjects to our government. We are citizens of our government. We don't just obey the government. We are the government. We get to participate in the government. But I think LBJ overestimated what voting can accomplish. Voting can produce injustice just as easily as it can produce justice. And it has done so many, many times in history. Voting is not prayer. And it's not going to change the direction of history. If we really want justice, it's going to have to come from Jesus, the King God has established. Oh, certainly, you, you, you should vote. You know, we're constantly being bombarded with reminders to vote. Every time you go online or turn on the TV, you're, you're bombarded with these reminders to vote. But you know, you should also keep in mind, Christ is the Lord of your vote. The universe is not a democracy. The universe is a monarchy. Christ is Lord of your vote just as he is Lord of everything. There's no area of life outside his rule. If someone were to ask you, how much does your faith influence your politics? I hope you can say 100%. Be the kind of person of whom they would say the dogma lives loudly in you. The dogma lives loudly in that one. That's what we want them to say about us. The dogma, the dogma of the gospel, the dogma of Christ's lordship, the dogma of Christ's forgiveness, his love, his wisdom, his reign over all things, the basic confession of the faith for the Christian, the basic confession of the Christian faith is Jesus is Lord. That's our most basic confession. Christ is Lord. And we want that confession of faith to work outwards from our individual Christian lives and our Christian families and, and, and to work outward from our churches into the rest of life, into the rest of, uh, of the culture, into the rest of the world. We want that confession, Christ is Lord, to make its long march through the institutions, transforming everything, every aspect of, of culture and life. Unfortunately, that's not what Christians have been doing. And so other creeds and confessions have been making their long march through the institutions. This is largely because Christians have been in retreat. We've been retreating with our confession for several generations now. And Psalm 2 reminds us this is a mistake. Psalm 2 shows us the concern of the Christian is not just with his own salvation. It's not just getting your own personal salvation taken care of. It's not enough even to want to make other individuals into Christians, as great as that is. We have to seek to make Christian culture, Christian civilization. That is the aim of the gospel, Christendom. Now, it's really not hard to figure this psalm out. It's got four very clear-cut sections. Verses 1 to 3 describe rebellious rulers and sinful peoples who take their stand against God, who view God's law as chains and fetters and seek to cast 
off those chains and fetters. They conspire against God and plot against God. Verses 4 through 6 describe God's response, how he laughs at these ridiculous rebels. He laughs at their plots and conspiracies because he has established his king. He set his king in Zion, his holy hill. Verses 7 through 9 then describe Messiah's kingdom and rule and the growth of his kingdom across the globe, across the centuries, how he will inherit the nations. The nations will ultimately be made his disciples. And then verses 10 to 12 have a warning. These verses describe a warning to rulers and, of course, ultimately to all, but it's especially David speaking to the other kings of the earth, the Gentile rulers of the earth, calling on them to repent and to serve the Son, to serve God's anointed one, God's Messiah. To kiss the son here means to submit and to bow before him. And the warning is, if you don't, you will wish you had because his wrath will flare up against you. Not hard to figure out the structure of this psalm. It's pretty plain. It's also not hard to figure out how this psalm is fulfilled. I've already hinted at this. But the New Testament quotes this psalm so much. This psalm is quoted so frequently in the New Testament. There's really no question what it's about. Oh, sure, there may have been some kind of initial fulfillment in David's life or the life of some other Israelite king, but clearly it finds its real fulfillment, its final fulfillment in Jesus. Indeed, most of this psalm is quoted in one place or another in the New Testament. Most of the psalm ends up getting repeated in the New Testament. We know this about the first part. We know the first part of the psalm, uh, which is about the nations raging and, and attacking the Lord's Messiah. This is fulfilled, obviously, in the crucifixion of Jesus. When Jewish leaders and Roman leaders and the peoples all come together to conspire against him. And it really was a conspiracy. If you read the gospel accounts of his trial, you can see this is, this is a plot. This is a conspiracy. There's nothing just about this. It's a complete injustice. But in Acts chapter 4, Psalm 2 is quoted. The apostles are starting to preach Jesus as the crucified and risen Messiah. And they're being persecuted for that. And so the apostles come together and they sing the prayer of Psalm 2, applying it to what has just happened. How, again, the peoples and rulers have gathered together against God's holy servant, Jesus. But this is what's interesting. It's not just the crucifixion. It's not limited to the crucifixion because obviously the rulers and and the peoples of the nations continue to come together to conspire against Jesus. So yes, this is fulfilled in the once and for all crucifixion of Jesus. The apostles apply it to that in Acts chapter 4. But in Revelation chapter 19, this same language from Psalm 2, the beginning of Psalm 2, is used to describe the kings of the earth and their armies, their peoples, gathering together to make war against Christ, who in Revelation 19 is the rider on the white horse. This is a war that continues down through the centuries of history. It's a war that continues throughout history with rulers and peoples repeatedly going to battle against the Lord, against the Lord's anointed, seeking to conspire against him and cast off his rule because the nations want to be autonomous. The second section is about the Lord laughing in heaven, laughing at the plots and conspiracies of the peoples against his son. And this ought to be a great comfort to us. This section is not explicitly quoted in the New Testament, but clearly it has to do with the way God overrules the rebellious rulers and peoples. 
who have come together against the Lord Jesus Christ. They think they're thwarting God's plan when actually they are fulfilling it. In Acts chapter 4, right after they quote, right after the apostles quote Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2 about how they've attacked God's servant Jesus. The, the apostles go on to say, they did only what your hand and your plan predestined to take place. The apostles say, this rebellion was a part of God's plan to bring about their own salvation. The nations took their stand and rebelled against God's Messiah, and they thought they were thwarting God's plan. Actually, they were fulfilling it, and ultimately fulfilling a plan that would bring about the salvation of these same rebellious peoples. It's the beauty of God's plan. It's, 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 a, it's a paradox, but there's a real beauty in it. They crucified Jesus in an act of blasphemy and murder and injustice, a horrific act of evil, but God used that same action to accomplish his good and gracious and merciful and loving plan of salvation. What they intended for evil, God used for good. And that's why God laughs. That's why God laughs at their conspiracies and their plots. You know, there are many places in Scripture that tell us about God's sense of humor. We know God has a sense of humor, like every other good thing in the world. Our sense of humor, our laughter, is a reflection and imaging of God's humor, God's laughter. But there are not a lot of places in Scripture that give us insight into this, but this is one of them. God can laugh at our rebellion. It is absurd to Him. It is ridiculous in His sight. It's like when a four-year-old boy tries to wrestle his dad. You know, dads like to roughhouse with their boys. And imagine a four-year-old boy wrestling with his dad. And, and, the, and the little boy's doing all he can to try to bring his dad down. But the dad can just laugh the whole time because this little boy can't hurt his dad. And his dad can pin him to the ground and put him in his place anytime he wants. And that's how it is with God. God laughs when we rebel, because we're just making fools of ourselves. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. When rulers announce what they're going to do, when politicians make promises, when government officials tell us about their power, all the different kinds of things they can do, when they tell us that uh, someone who is born as a girl can be turned into a boy with what? A, a, a note, a, a piece of paper from the government? All this kind of nonsense that we hear uh, in our day. We ought to just laugh at it. God is laughing at it. We ought to laugh too. God laughs. His people ought to laugh. This is, an, this is one reason why I really love the Babylon Bee. We got any Babylon Bee fans in the congregation? I'm, I'm a big fan of the Babylon Bee. Uh, because it uses comedy to puncture our arrogance. To mock our pretensions. It gets us to laugh at ourselves. The reality is a lot of their satire, a lot of their comedy is aimed at us, at Christians. But of course they also use satire to show the folly of our rulers. uh, To help us laugh. Because God is laughing. The third section, verses 7 through 9. This is about the father begetting the son. And uh, we might think, oh, this language must refer to some eternal mystery uh, within the Trinity, the eternal begetting of the son. But actually, the way this is used in the New Testament, the father begetting the son is a reference to his resurrection. 
That's how it's used in Acts chapter 13. This section of Psalm 2 is cited in Acts 13 with reference to Christ's resurrection when he becomes the firstborn or the first begotten from the dead. The first man, the pioneer of a new humanity. In Acts 13, Paul is preaching the gospel. He's preaching to Jews, so he's preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. And he says, God has fulfilled this by raising Jesus from the dead as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. When Psalm 2 says, today I have begotten you, what is that today? It is Easter Sunday. That is the day when the Father begat the Son. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 to make the same point. I think it's actually alluded to in Romans chapter 1 to make the same point. So what does it mean? What does it mean for the Father to beget the Son in this way? Well, God has always been sovereign, but once God raises Jesus from the dead, now we can say the God-man is sovereign. In his resurrection, Jesus is declared with power to be the promised son of David, who rules over all. In his resurrection and then his ascension, he is seated on the throne on Mount Zion, God's holy hill. And now all authority in heaven and on earth belong to him as the incarnate Lord, one who shares our humanity, one who wears our flesh, rules over all things. That's what this is about. He is the begotten of the Father. He's the firstborn from the dead. And this psalm goes on to describe what his reign will accomplish in history. As the one who has victory over death, what will he do? As the one who has been installed and seated at God's right hand on the throne of the universe, what will he do? Verse 8, the Father says to the Son, we get to overhear We get to to eavesdrop on an inter-Trinitarian conversation. The Father speaking to the Son. The Father says, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Father making promises to his incarnate Son. You know, politicians make really grand-sounding promises. Politicians make really grand-sounding promises as a way of getting our votes, but we know they can't keep those promises. Well, the Father is going to keep his promises to the Son. Jesus has a right to the throne of the universe. He is the rightful ruler over all things, and he will inherit the nations. The nations belong to him, and he will inherit them over the course of history. America... The United States of America and every other nation belongs to Christ. He purchased it with his blood and his father promised to give it to him. And so over the course of history, the father is going to give America to the son. The son will ask the father, father, I want America. It's time for me to have America. I purchased America. I want it. And the father will give America to him as his redemptive possession. And he'll do that with every other nation, every other people group. Every nation belongs to him. Every nation will be given to him as a gift from his father. And all of history is just the unfolding of this process. It's not as if the son died for the nations and then isn't going to ask for them. It's not as if the father has promised them and then the son's not going to ask for them. No, he will ask. He is asking. And the spread of his kingdom over the last 2,000 years shows you he is asking 
And that kingdom's going to continue to spread and grow through the course of history. Here's a way to think about this. The promise the Father makes to the Son matches the commission the Son gives to His disciples. What the Father says to the Son here helps us then understand what the Son says to the disciples in Matthew 28. Where Jesus says to his followers, go therefore, because all authority has been given to me, go therefore and disciple the nations, baptizing them and teaching them everything I have commanded you. And yes, this may mean a process of judgment for the nations as they are smashed and dashed by the sun with his rod of iron. Verse 9 describes that. But the aim of this process is the salvation of the nations. God's purpose is to bless all the families and nations of the earth with his salvation. God wants all the nations, all the families of the earth, to know and enjoy his grace and his glory. That is God's purpose in history. We engage in missions, we send missionaries, and we support missionaries in faraway places because Jesus is Lord in every place and he will inherit every nation. When we send out missionaries, they're not going on a fool's errand. They're simply going to claim what Christ has already purchased, what the Father has already promised. I mean, you might think, what right do I have What right do we have to tell people anywhere on planet earth that they need to repent of their sin against Jesus and put their trust in him as savior? What right do we have to tell people that? What right do we have to impose our values on other people? That's how the world looks at it. That's what we're doing. What right do we have to proselytize, to evangelize, to make this announcement, to make this claim on other people's lives? Well, we have a right to tell people anywhere and everywhere that they must repent because Jesus really is Lord. He is Lord over all. He is King of Kings and he reigns over heaven and earth. The nations are his and his kingdom will spread to fill the earth. His kingdom will grow to transform all of life. We're getting really close to the Advent and Christmas season. Hard to believe. Time flies and 2020 will come to an end. But we're getting really close to the Advent and Christmas season. And when we get into that season and we start to sing those Advent and Christmas hymns, I really want you to listen this year to how many of those hymns are about the nations. How many of those hymns describe what Jesus will do for the nations in history. Because that's how those promises have always been understood. That's what inspired the, so many of this, the, the, these great hymns, the great hymnody of the church, especially of these seasons. It's this understanding that Jesus' kingdom is going to grow to fill the earth, that all peoples, all races, all languages will be brought to him. There's one other thing to note here that I think really changes the way we read the whole psalm. In fact, once we see this, we really have to reread the whole psalm. We've got to go back and look at it again. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is uh, he's writing letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And in Revelation 2, he says this to the church at Thyatira. He says, to the one who keeps my works until the end, to him, so this is Jesus speaking to Christians, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. There in Revelation 2, Jesus takes the promise the Father gave him and he gives that promise to us, to his disciples. 
says, the Father has given me a kingdom to reign over the nations, but I'm giving you a kingdom to reign over the nations. And what that means is we can now go back and reread this whole psalm, not only about Jesus, but about the church as well. And so think about it. It's not just Jesus who got attacked by the rulers and and, and the kings of the earth and, and the peoples of the earth. His people, his followers are attacked by rulers and the peoples of the nations as well, even as Jesus was. But God has seated us with Christ in heavenly places. That's taught in Ephesians 2. And so we share in his reign over all things and in his judgment of all things. We will suffer, but we will suffer in union with Jesus. And so our suffering will bring salvation to the nations. Our faithful suffering will further the purposes of his kingdom. We have been promised the nations. We've been promised a kingdom. We are all kings and queens in union with Jesus. And so as kings and queens, how do we express our rule? We lay down our lives for the sake of the world. We give ourselves for the life of the world. That's what we're called to do. And knowing, you know, we we know in this, this is how the nations will be brought to bow before King Jesus. How will the nations be brought to kneel before King Jesus? Through the faithful suffering and serving of his people. As we suffer and serve in Jesus' name. The kingdom is furthered and the nations are brought in. We see that because of the way Revelation 2 uses this psalm. It doesn't just apply to Jesus, it applies to the church as well. And finally, the fourth part, verses 10 to 12. This is David's advice to the rulers of the earth. We might even say this is uh, David's advice to our next president, to any president, to any ruler. What does he say? He tells rulers here to kiss the sun. That kiss, of course, is a sign of submission and loyalty. But someone might say, how can David give this advice? We Americans, after all, we believe in the separation of church and state. So how can a president do this? How can he even tell a president to do this? Let me tell you this. The reason our nation believes in the separation of church and state The reason we hold that church and state are distinct institutions is because this is a truth taught in the Bible. Pagan nations, pagan civilizations generally didn't have this kind of separation of the political from the religious. What the Bible clearly teaches is there is an institutional distinction between church and state. We don't believe pastors should run the state any more than we believe politicians should run the church. Now, ideally, you'll have these two institutions of church and state cooperating together, working together to promote righteousness, each in their own sphere, in their own domain. But the institutions of church and state should never be merged or confused. And this was certainly the case in ancient Israel. David was a king, but he was not a priest. The king, the kingly line and the priestly line were distinct in ancient Israel. The key really is this. This is what I think David is getting at. We have to see that the state is under Christ's lordship every bit as much as the church. And the word of God is authoritative for all of life. And so, yes, scripture speaks to our individual lives, our family lives, our church life. But scripture also makes political claims. As we see here in Psalm 2. The separation of church and state is not the same as the separation of Christ and state. Christ is Lord over the Christian. He is Lord over the church. 
But he is also Lord over the state, the economy, the culture. He is Lord over music and painting and sculpture and poetry. He is Lord over banking and finance and industry and medicine. He is Lord over all. And this is something we need to understand. If Christ is not Lord of the state, the state will be Lord over us. It is only because Christ is Lord of the state that we can have limited government. The the traditional Christian view of limited government is a product of this view of Christ's lordship over all things. Only Christ has infinite, unlimited rule. If Christ is not Lord of the state, there is no higher law that limits the state. The state becomes unlimited. The state becomes God. And that's what we're seeing among secularists today. Statism. The state as a religious entity. The cult of the state. The state as savior. And this is why it is so dangerous when Christians privatize their faith. When we think of Christ only as a personal Lord and Savior and not a public Lord as well. Now, the powers that be like it when we privatize our faith. Because a privatized faith is no threat to the powers that be. But a privatized faith that does not engage with or speak to the public square is not what Jesus wants. It's certainly not what David envisioned in this psalm. And I want you to understand, this is no fairy tale. There have been kings over the course of history that have taken David's advice and kissed the sun. Think about the book of Daniel, set in the 500s B.C. We read about Nebuchadnezzar. He was a pagan king, so he did what pagan kings do. He built a great tower or statue in his own honor, great statue out of gold, and he commanded people to worship it. This was the the burning a pinch of incense to Caesar in Nebuchadnezzar's day. It was bowing before this gold image Nebuchadnezzar had made. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those faithful Jewish believers, refused to bow before his golden image, Nebuchadnezzar had them thrown into the fiery furnace. But when they survived that ordeal, because of God's miraculous protection, you know what happened? Nebuchadnezzar repented. He went through a period of humiliation, but then he sent out a letter. He sent out a decree to his whole empire. He sent out a decree to everyone, to all peoples, nations, and languages in his kingdom, calling on them to repent. In this letter, he confessed his faith in the Most High God. He blessed the Most High God, and he called on his subjects to do the same. That was Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, The Roman Emperor Constantine in the 4th century kissed the sun as well. He had been just another pagan emperor. Another pagan Roman emperor. But then on the eve of a great battle, he had a vision of a cross. And after he won the victory, he gave God credit. And he began the process, the slow process, of Christianizing his empire. He outlawed pagan sacrifice. Okay, the reason pagans are not allowed to have animal sacrifices today, or human sacrifices for that matter, we trace that back to Constantine. He reformed laws in his kingdom to better reflect God's justice. It was the beginning of the first Christian civilization. But what's the flip side of this? What happens when a ruler won't kiss the sun? 
David here is not just giving advice to kings in Israel. That's important to understand. He's speaking to all the rulers of the earth. He's speaking to President Trump. He's speaking to Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He's speaking to Chancellor Angela Merkel. He's speaking to Governor Ivey. He's speaking to Mayor Woodfin and Mayor Brocado. He's speaking to all 100 senators. He's speaking to all 435 members of the House of Representatives. He's speaking to all nine Supreme Court justices, and he is giving a warning. He is saying, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And if you rulers will not kiss the sun, what's going to happen to you and to your people? The sun will get angry and his wrath will flare up in a moment. Verse 12. Jesus is the judge of all at the end of history. We know that. But here David is talking about something else. He's talking about the judgments of the nations within history. Jesus judging nations within history. The rising and falling of, uh, of nations and empires in history is in Jesus' hand. And oh sure, he may let a wicked nation prosper for some time and he may let the righteous language languish for a period. But over time, Unrepentant nations will be hit with his rod of iron. He will dash them in pieces. And he will do so ultimately to humble them and bring them to repentance. The principle here is really found in Jeremiah 18. God says, if I declare I will judge and destroy a nation and that nation turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I intended for it. And if I declare I will plant and build a nation, that is, if if God says he's going to prosper a nation and that nation does evil in his sight, God says I will relent from the good I intended to do it. That is the principle. We need to understand there is no such thing as a secular state. No such thing as a secular culture, if by secular you mean non-religious or religiously neutral. Every state is religious, intrinsically so. Every state has a God. Every state has laws, and all laws rooted in some vision of morality, and all morality comes from some God. There's no God-free zone in all of creation. All of life is inescapably religious. Every society has its blasphemy laws. Every society protects its God or gods. Today we call those blasphemy laws hate speech. But it's the same thing. It's the same principle. We have idols. And we may give those idols names like science or logic or philosophy. We may call them poles or popularity. We may call them pleasure or money. You know, when we serve money, what are we really doing? We're worshiping mammon. When children are slaughtered in abortion clinics, we're really serving Molech. When we put our trust in military might, we're really just worshiping Mars. Our culture has its gods. We have our pantheon of gods. Every society is a theocracy in that sense. The only question is which god are we serving? Which god are we worshiping? It's not whether we will have a god, it's which god we will have. So what do we see in our society? Well, where do our laws come from? What god is served and honored in our public square? Who are you not allowed to criticize? These are the kinds of questions we need to be asking because these questions reveal our gods. Again, every society is a theocracy. It's just a question of which God rules. Which God rules our political and public life. So what does this mean for America? Rulers who will not acknowledge God will try to be God themselves. 
And that's how government grows. The answer to government's failure ironically becomes more and more government. And of course, the bigger the government becomes, the smaller the citizen becomes, and ultimately the government becomes God on earth, functionally. And this is why we as Christians are concerned with politics and with our nation's policies and laws. We're not going to obsess over it. Uh, We know that changing people's hearts is more foundational, more fundamental than changing laws. We can also say, you know, we're pretty sure Jesus is not pleased with a lot of things in our culture. He's not pleased with the legalized sacrifice or murder of the unborn. Because in the Gospels, we see how much Jesus cares for infants and children. He's not pleased with how we've tried to to, to redefine marriage, with the way we've deformed the institution of marriage, what we've done with divorce laws and with same-sex unions, because marriage is supposed to image, it's supposed to symbolize Christ's relationship with his bride. And we've marred that. We've vandalized that institution. He's not pleased with racism. Because when we divide people up by the color of their skin, we're creating divisions that ought not to be there. Christ created all of us and he died for sinners of every color from every nation. We care about these kinds of issues because Jesus does. We care about these kinds of issues because our Lord does. We speak to them because Jesus speaks to them. The question really is not which political party should we attach ourselves to. The question is which political party will attach itself to Jesus. Neither one of our political parties is doing a very good job of that right now. Though one, I think, is certainly more problematic than the other. The church is not supposed to be a partisan institution. But when more and more of life gets politicized, we may be accused of playing politics when really all we're doing is standing for truth and standing for morality in the public square. And really doing so, standing for truth and for true morality in the public square, these are essential elements of loving our neighbors and seeking the common good of the whole society. It's really not partisan. We're not just doing this for ourselves. We really believe humans will flourish and thrive much better if we more closely conform the structures of our society to God's design, to these realities. We want this to be a nation under God, a nation under Christ, because that's what Psalm 2 calls us to. Jesus loves America just like he loves every nation. Jesus died for the United States of America. Jesus reigns over America. And Jesus is calling America to submit to his word, to seek refuge in him, because that is the only way to know his blessing. You know, our nation's money, our nation's motto says, in God we trust, but we need to ask, what God is it? And if it's not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's some other God, a God of our own making, it's an idol. In the Pledge of Allegiance, what are those words, one nation under God, mean? What would happen if we changed those words to one nation under the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think that would go over well? But that's what Psalm 2 is aiming at. It's what it calls us to. There's no God but the true God, the God of the Bible, the God revealed in Jesus. There's no morality. There's no true morality, but the morality God has revealed in his word, in his law, and and reflected in his creational design. 
There can be no blessing, no flourishing, no peace, no prosperity, no lasting happiness apart from Him. And that is as true for nations as as it is for individuals. All governments that cast off God, all governments that view God's law as chains and fetters, all governments that put man's law in the place of God's law, all nations that refuse to worship the risen Christ and honor Him as Lord in the public square will eventually self-destruct. A society that rejects the true and living God and the King He has established on His holy hill will self-destruct. It will fall into anarchy or tyranny. Centuries ago, the church father Augustine said, remove justice And what are kingdoms but gangs of criminals? We could just as truly say, remove Christ. And what are kingdoms but gangs of criminals? Christ is the only way to justice. You want a just society? You better want Jesus acknowledged as Lord of society because that's the only way. We're living in a Psalm 2 moment in history. A time when the nations are clearly in an upheaval and in an uproar. And people are plotting a vain thing. Conspiring against God and against His anointed. Conspiring against God's Word and God's law. And we as God's people need to know, we need to remember. God is not troubled by the ravings of these madmen, And so we don't need to be troubled either. You can sleep easy Tuesday night. I hope you will. You can sleep easy Tuesday night. You can sleep easy every night because you know the world's true king. This world belongs to Jesus. And history is going to continue to unfold according to God's perfect plan. Everything is going according to script. Everything is going according to God's plan. God might want to smash America with his rod of iron. He might want to give us foolish rulers as a punishment in order to make that happen. Or he might want to give America reformation and revival. A new era of free grace leading to free men, leading to free markets and a free society. I don't know. You don't know. But we do know that Jesus is king. And we know in the long run where he is taking history. We know whatever happens, it's part of God's plan, his loving purposes. It's part of how He will bring about His salvation. A salvation Christ has already accomplished. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.